Book Four, Chapter Three, of the Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Book Four, The Closed Door, Chapter Three. She goes out to battle against depression. A few days later, before the month of August had expired, Eustacia and Yobright sat together at their early dinner. Eustacia's manner had become of late almost apathetic. There was a forlorn look about her beautiful eyes, which, whether she deserved it or not, would have excited pity in the breast of anyone who had known her during the full flush of her love for Klim. The feelings of husband and wife varied, in some measure, inversely with their positions. Klim, the afflicted man, was cheerful, and he even tried to comfort her, who had never felt a moment of physical suffering in her whole life. Calm, brighten up, dearest. We shall be all right again. Some day, perhaps, I shall see as well as ever, and I solemnly promise that I leave off furs cutting as soon as I have the power to do anything better. You cannot seriously wish me to stay idling at home all day. But it is so dreadful. A furs cutter! and you a man who have lived about the world and speak french and german and who are fit for what is so much better than this i suppose when you first saw me and heard about me i was wrapped in a sort of golden halo to your eyes a man who knew glorious things and had mixed in brilliant scenes in short an adorable delightful distracting hero yes she said sobbing and now i am a poor fellow in brown leather don't taunt me but enough of this I will not be depressed any more. I am going from home this afternoon, unless you greatly object. There is to be a village picnic, a gypsying, they call it, at East Egdon, and I shall go. To dance. Why not? You can sing. Well, well, as you wish. Must I come to fetch you? If you return soon enough from your work, but do not inconvenience yourself about it. I know the way home, and the heath has no terror for me. And can you cling to gaiety so eagerly as to walk all the way to a village festival in search of it? Now you don't like my going alone. Clem, you are not jealous. No, but I would come with you if it could give you any pleasure, though as things stand perhaps you have too much of me already. Still, I somehow wish that you did not want to go. Yes, perhaps I am jealous. And who could be jealous with more reason than I, a half-blind man, over such a woman as you? Don't think like it. Let me go, and don't take all my spirits away. I would rather lose all my own, my sweet wife. Go and do whatever you like. Who can forbid your indulgence in any whim? You have all my heart yet, I believe. And because you bear with me, who am in truth a drag upon you, I owe you thanks. Yes, go alone and shine. As for me, I will stick to my doom. At that kind of meeting people would shun me. My hook and gloves are like the St. Lazarus rattle of the leper warning the world to get out of the way of a sight that would sadden them. He kissed her, put on his leggings, and went out. When he was gone, she rested her head upon her hands, and said to herself, Two wasted lives, his and mine, and I am come to this. Will it drive me out of my mind? She cast about for any possible course which offered the least improvement on the existing state of things and could find none. She imagined how all those Budmouth ones who should learn what had become of her would say, 
Look at the girl for whom nobody was good enough. To Eustacia, the situation seemed such a mockery of her hopes that death appeared the only door of relief if the satire of heaven should go much further. Suddenly she aroused herself and exclaimed, But I'll shake it off. Yes, I will shake it off. No one shall know my suffering. I'll be bitterly merry, and ironically gay, and I'll laugh in derision. And I'll begin by going to this dance on the green. She ascended to her bedroom and dressed herself with scrupulous care. To an onlooker her beauty would have made her feelings almost seem reasonable. The gloomy corner into which accident as much as indiscretion had brought this woman might have led even a moderate partisan to feel that she had cogent reasons for asking the supreme power by what right a being of such exquisite finish had been placed in circumstances calculated to make her charms a curse rather than a blessing. It was five in the afternoon when she came out from the house ready for her walk. There was material enough in the picture for twenty new conquests. The rebellious sadness that was rather too apparent when she sat indoors, without a bonnet, was cloaked and softened by her outdoor attire, which always had a sort of nebulousness about it, devoid of harsh edges anywhere, so that her face looked from its environment as from a cloud, with no noticeable lines of demarcation between flesh and clothes. The heat of the day had scarcely declined as yet and she went along the sunny hills at a leisurely pace, there being ample time for her idle expedition. Tall ferns buried her in their leafage whenever her path lay through them, which now formed miniature forests, though not one stem of them would remain to bud the next year. The site chosen for the village festivity was one of the lawn-like oases which were occasionally, yet not often, met with on the plateau of the Heath district. The breaks of firs and fern terminated abruptly round the margin, and the grass was unbroken. A green cattle-track skirted the spot, without, however, emerging from the screen of fern, and this path Eustacia followed, in order to reconnoitre the group before joining it. The lusty notes of the East Egdon band had directed her unerringly, and she now beheld the musicians themselves, sitting in a blue wagon with red wheels scrubbed as bright as new, and arched with sticks to which boughs and flowers were tied. In front of this was the grand central dance of fifteen or twenty couples, flanked by minor dances of inferior individuals whose gyrations were not always in strict keeping with the tune. The young men wore blue and white rosettes, and, with a flush on their faces, footed it to the girls, who, with the excitement and the exercise, blushed deeper than the pink of their numerous ribbons. Fair ones with long curls, fair ones with short curls, fair ones with love-locks, fair ones with braids, flew round and round, and a beholder might have well wondered how such a prepossessing set of young women of like size, age, and disposition could have been collected together where there were only one or two villages to choose from. In the background was one happy man dancing by himself, with closed eyes, totally oblivious of all the rest. A fire was burning under a pollard thorn a few paces off, over which three kettles hung in a row. Hard by was a table where elderly dames prepared tea, but Eustacia looked among them in vain for the cattle-dealer's wife, who had suggested that she should come, and had promised to obtain a courteous welcome for her. 
This unexpected absence of the only local resident whom Eustacia knew considerably damaged her scheme for an afternoon of reckless gaiety. Joining in became a matter of difficulty, notwithstanding that, were she to advance, cheerful dames would come forward with cups of tea and make much of her as a stranger of superior grace and knowledge to themselves. Having watched the company through the figures of two dances, she decided to walk a little further, to a cottage where she might get some refreshment, and then return homeward in the shady time of evening. This she did, and by the time that she retraced her steps towards the scene of the gypsying, which it was necessary to repass on her way to Alderworth, the sun was going down. The air was now so still that she could hear the band afar off, and it seemed to be playing with more spirit, if that were possible, than when she had come away. On reaching the hill the sun had quite disappeared, but this made little difference either to Eustatio or to the revellers, for a round yellow moon was rising before her, though its rays had not yet outmastered those from the west. The dance was going on just the same, but strangers had arrived and formed a ring around the figure, so that Eustacia could stand among these without a chance of being recognized. A whole village full of sensuous emotion, scattered abroad all the year long, surged here in a focus for an hour. The forty hearts of those waving couples were beating as they had not done since twelve months before. They had come together in a similar jollity. For the time paganism was revived in their hearts. The pride of life was all in all, and they adored none other than themselves. How many of these impassioned but temporary embraces were destined to become perpetual was possibly the wonder of some of those who indulged in them, as well as of Eustacia who looked on. She began to envy those pirouettes, to hunger for the hope and happiness which the fascination of the dance seemed to engender within them. Desperately fond of dancing herself, one of Eustacia's expectations of Paris had been the opportunity it might afford her of indulgence in this favorite pastime. Unhappily, that expectation was now extinct within her forever. Whilst she abstractedly watched them spinning and fluctuating in the increasing moonlight, she suddenly heard her name whispered by a voice over her shoulder. Turning in surprise, she beheld at her elbow one whose presence instantly caused her to flush to the temples. It was Wildeve. Till this moment he had not met her eye since the morning of his marriage, when she had been loitering in the church, and had startled him by lifting her veil and coming forward to sign the register as witness. Yet why the sight of him should have instigated that sudden rush of blood she could not tell. Before she could speak, he whispered, Do you like dancing as much as ever? I think I do, she replied in a low voice. Will you dance with me? It would be a great change for me. But will it not seem strange? What strangeness can there be in relations dancing together? Ah, yes, relations. Perhaps none. Still, if you don't like to be seen, pull down your veil though there is not much risk of being known by this light. Lots of strangers are here." She did as he suggested, and the act was a tacit acknowledgment that she accepted his offer. Wild Eve gave her his arm, and took her down to the outside of the ring to the bottom of the dance, which they entered. 
In two minutes more they were involved in the figure, and began working their way upwards to the top. Till they had advanced halfway thither, Eustacia wished more than once that she had not yielded to his request. From the middle to the top she felt that, since she had come out to seek pleasure, she was only doing a natural thing to obtain it. Fairly launched into the ceaseless glides and whirls which their new position as top couple opened up to them, Eustacia's pulses began to move too quickly for long rumination of any kind. Through the length of five and twenty couples they threaded their giddy way, and a new vitality entered her form. The pale ray of evening lent a fascination to the experience. There is a certain degree and tone of light which tends to disturb the equilibrium of the senses, and to promote dangerously the tenderer moods. Added to movement, it drives the emotions to rankness, the reason becoming sleepy and unperceiving in inverse proportion, and this light fell now upon these two from the disk of the moon. All the dancing girls felt the symptoms, but Eustacia most of all. The grass under their feet became trodden away, and the hard-beaten surface of the sod, when viewed aslant towards the moonlight, shone like a polished table. The air became quite still, the flag above the wagon which held the musicians clung to the pole, and the players appeared only in outline against the sky, except when the circular mouths of the trombone, ophiclide, and French horn gleamed out like huge eyes from the shade of their figures. The pretty dresses of the maids lost their subtler day colors, and showed more or less of a misty white. Eustacia floated round and round on Wild Eve's arm, her face rapt and statuesque, her soul had passed away from and forgotten her features, which were left empty and quiescent, as they always are when feeling goes beyond their register. How near she was to Wild Eve! It was terrible to think of. She could feel his breathing, and he, of course, could feel hers. How badly she had treated him! Yet here they were, treading one measure. The enchantment of the dance surprised her. A clear line of difference divided, like a tangible fence, her experience within this maze of motion from her experience without it. Her beginning to dance had been like a change of atmosphere. Outside she had been steeped in arctic frigidity by comparison with the tropical sensations here. She had entered the dance from the troubled hours of her late life as one might enter a brilliant chamber after a night walk in a wood. Wild Eve by himself would have been merely an agitation. Wild Eve added to the dance, and the moonlight, and the secrecy, began to be a delight. Whether his personality supplied the greater part of this sweetly compounded feeling, or whether the dance and the scene weighed the more therein, was a nice point upon which Eustacia herself was entirely in a cloud. People began to say, Who are they? But no invidious inquiries were made. Had Eustacia mingled with the other girls in their ordinary daily walks, the case would have been different. Here she was not inconvenienced by excessive inspection, for all were wrought to their brightest grace by the occasion. Like the planet Mercury surrounded by the luster of sunset, her permanent brilliancy passed without much notice in the temporary glory of the situation. As for Wild Eve, his feelings are easy to guess. 
obstacles were a ripening sun to his love and he was at this moment in a delirium of exquisite misery to clasp as his for five minutes what was another man's through all the rest of the year was a kind of thing he of all men could appreciate he had long since begun to sigh again for eustacia indeed it may be asserted that signing the marriage register with thomason was the natural signal to his heart to return to its first quarters and that the extra complication of eustacia's marriage was the one addition required to make that return compulsory thus for different reasons what was to the rest an exhilarating movement was to these two a riding upon the whirlwind the dance had come like an irresistible attack upon whatever sense of social order was there in their minds to drive them back into old paths which were now doubly irregular through three dances in succession they spun their way and then fatigued with the incessant motion eustacia turned to quit the circle in which she had already remained too long wildeve led her to a grassy mound a few yards distant where she sat down her partner standing beside her from the time that he addressed her at the beginning of the dance till now they had not exchanged a word the dance and the walking have tired you he said tenderly no not greatly it is strange that we should have met here of all places after missing each other so long we have missed because we tried to miss i suppose yes but you began that proceeding by breaking a promise it is scarcely worth while to talk of that now we have formed other ties since then you no less than i i am sorry to hear that your husband is ill he is not ill only incapacitated yes that is what i mean i sincerely sympathize with you in your trouble fate has treated you cruelly she was silent a while have you heard that he has chosen to work as a furs cutter she said in a low mournful voice uh, it has been mentioned to me answered wildeve hesitatingly but i hardly believed it it is true what do you think of me as a furs cutter's wife i think the same as ever of you eustacia nothing of that sort can degrade you you ennoble the occupation of your husband i wish i could feel it is there any chance of mr yobright getting better he thinks so i doubt it i was quite surprised to hear that he had taken a cottage i thought in common with other people that he would have taken you off to a home in paris immediately after you had married him what a gay bright future she has before her i thought he will, I suppose, return there with you, if his sight gets strong again. Observing that she did not reply, he regarded her more closely. She was almost weeping. Images of a future never to be enjoyed, the revived sense of her bitter disappointments, the picture of the neighbor's suspended ridicule which was raised by Wild Eve's words, had been too much for proud Eustacia's equanimity. Wild Eve could hardly control his own too forward feelings when he saw her silent perturbation. But he affected not to notice this, and she soon recovered her calmness. "'You do not intend to walk home by yourself?' he asked. "'Oh, yes,' said Eustacia. "'What could hurt me on this heath, who have nothing?' "'By diverging a little, I can make my way home the same as yours. I shall be glad to keep you company as far as Throop Corner.' 
Seeing that Eustacia sat on in hesitation, he added, Perhaps you think it unwise to be seen in the same road with me, after the events of last summer. Indeed, I think no such thing, she said haughtily. I shall accept whose company I choose, for all that may be said by the miserable inhabitants of Egdon. Then let us walk on, if you are ready. Our nearest way is towards that holly bush with the dark shadow that you see down there. Eustacia arose and walked beside him in the direction signified, brushing her way over the damping heath and fern, and followed by the strange of the merrymakers who still kept up the dance. The moon had now waxed bright and silvery, but the heath was proof against such illumination, and there was to be observed the striking scene of a dark, rayless tract of country, under an atmosphere charged from its zenith to its extremities with whitest light. To an eye above them their two faces would have appeared amid the expanse like two pearls on a table of ebony. On this account the irregularities of the path were not visible, and Wildeve occasionally stumbled, whilst Eustacia found it necessary to perform such graceful feats of balancing whenever a small tuft of heather or foot of furze protruded itself through the grass of the narrow track and entangled her feet. At these junctures in her progress a hand was invariably stretched forward to steady her, holding her firmly until smooth ground was again reached, when the hand was again withdrawn to a respectful distance. They performed the journey for the most part in silence, and drew near to Throop Corner, a few hundred yards from which a short path branched away to Eustacia's house. By degrees they discerned coming towards them a pair of human figures, apparently of the male sex. When they came a little nearer, Eustacia broke the silence by saying, One of those men is my husband. He promised to come to meet me. And the other is my greatest enemy, said Wildeve. It looks like Diggory Venn. That is the man. It is an awkward meeting, said she. But such is my fortune. He knows too much about me, unless he could know more, and so prove to himself that what he now knows counts for nothing. Well, let it be. You must deliver me up to them. You will think twice before you direct me to do that. Here is a man who has not forgotten an item in our meetings at Rainbarrow. He is in company with your husband. Which of them, seeing us together here, will believe that our meeting and dancing at the gypsy party was by chance? Very well she whispered gloomily. Leave me before they come up. Wild Eve bade her a tender farewell, and plunged across the fern and firs, Eustacia slowly walking on. In two or three minutes she met her husband and his companion. My journey ends here for to-night, Redleman, said Yobright as soon as he perceived her. I turn back with this lady. Good night. Good night, Mr. Yobright, said Venn. I hope to see you better soon. The moonlight shone directly upon Venn's face as he spoke, and revealed all its lines to Eustacia. He was looking suspiciously at her. That Venn's keen eye had discerned what Yobright's feeble vision had not, a man in the act of withdrawing from Eustacia's side, was within the limits of the probable. If Eustacia had been able to follow the red man, she would soon have found striking confirmation of her thought. No sooner had Clem given her his arm and led her off the scene than the Redman turned back from the beaten track towards East Egdon, whither he had been strolling merely to accompany Clem in his walk, Diggory's van being again in the neighbourhood. 
Stretching out his long legs, he crossed the pathless portion of the heath somewhat in the direction which Wildeve had taken. Only a man accustomed to nocturnal rambles could at this hour have descended those shaggy slopes with Ven's velocity without falling headlong into a pit, or snapping off his leg by jamming his foot into some rabbit-burrow. But Venn went on without much inconvenience to himself, and the course of his scamper was towards the quiet woman inn. This place he reached in about half an hour, and he was well aware that no person who had been near Thrope Corner when he started could have got down here before him. The lonely inn was not yet closed, though scarcely an individual was there, the business being done chiefly with travellers who passed the inn on long journeys, and these had now gone on their way. Venn went to the public room, called for a mug of ale, and inquired of the maid in an indifferent tone if Mr. Wildeve was at home. Thomason sat in an inner room, and heard Venn's voice. When customers were present she seldom showed herself, owing to her inherent dislike for the business, but, perceiving that no one else was there to-night, she came out. "'He's not at home yet, Diggory,' she said pleasantly. "'But I expected him sooner. He has been to East Egdon to buy a horse.' "'Did he wear a light white awake?' "'Yes.' "'Then I saw him at Thrope Corner, leading one home,' said Van dryly. "'A beauty, with a white face, and a mane as black as night. He will soon be here, no doubt.' Rising and looking for a moment at the pure sweet face of Thomason, over which a shadow of sadness had passed since the time when he had last seen her, he ventured to add, "'Mr. Wildeve seems to be often away at this time.' "'Oh, yes,' cried Thomason, in what was intended to be a tone of gaiety. "'Husbands will play the truant, you know. I wish you could tell me of some secret plan that would help me to keep him home at my will in the evenings.' "'I will consider if I know of one,' replied Venn, in that same light tone which meant no lightness. And then he bowed in a manner of his own invention, and moved to go. Thomason offered him her hand, and without a sigh, though with food for many, the Reddleman went out. When Wildeve returned a quarter of an hour later, Thomason said simply, and in the abashed manner usual with her now, "'Where is the horse, Damon?' "'Oh, I have not bought it after all. The man asks too much.' But somebody saw you at Throop Corner leading it home, a beauty with a white face and a mane as black as night. Ah, said Wildeve, fixing his eyes upon her. Who told you that? Then the Reddleman. The expression of Wildeve's face became curiously condensed. That is a mistake. It must have been someone else. He said, slowly and testily, for he perceived that Venn's counter-moves had begun again. End of Book 4, Chapter 3